0: Love
1: Talk Radio
0: Choices, decisions Frustrations and pain
2: Knowing I'm going To forget her
0: someday While I still can I'll challenge all my loved ones Every friend To look inside their heart and understand that I
3: Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort. At our core, we believe in being collaborative and feel that that's really the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. We were just recognized by Dr. Oz and ShareCare as being the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's And I have to thank all of our listeners for helping us achieve that wonderful, wonderful recognition. By joining forces and sharing knowledge and really having those everyday conversations about what is life really like with dementia, we can start to break down those barriers and stigma that people with memory loss and their loved ones are living with. We can help those in the trenches take back their lives and live with purpose. Together, we can help both family, people that are living with dementia, and professionals live fulfilled lives together while on this journey. Here at Alzheimer Speaks, we're all about giving voice to all. And so today, I am so honored to have two of the top experts um, in the world with us today. We are really going to raise a lot of awareness, and I hope that you join the conversation because you can do that by uh, utilizing your chat box, if you signed in by Facebook, or you can also always call in live to the show at 714-364-4757. Again, that number is 714-364-4757. Our channel expert Rick Phelps, who has early onset, I'm not sure if he's going to make it uh, on the show today or not. He just got back from his uh, convention for Memory People, which was their their first get together in New York. And so, if Rick is able to join us, I will go ahead and pull him in. If uh, if you're not familiar with uh, with Memory People, go to Facebook and just uh, plug it in. It's a it's a place where people can talk in live time and talk with people who have dementia, people who are dealing with dementia, both family professionals and advocates. Uh, there isn't any professional advice given. It's just really, truly everyday practical tips um, and tools and support that people, people are doing and utilizing and sharing. So it's a wonderful way to, uh, to work together. I also want to just remind you that if you haven't checked out our website at Alzheimer's Speaks, it's the first international collaborative resource site. And there you can find all of our platforms, the radio, the blog, the YouTube, um, the resource directory, and so much more. And so with no further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce our first guest, uh, who is Dr. G. Allen Power. Uh, Alan is a, is a um, medical professional, and he is an Eden mentor at the St. John's Home in Rochester, New York. And he's also a clinical associate professor of medicine at the University of Rochester. He's a board-certified internist and geriatrician, and he's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, American Society for Internal Medicine. Dr. Power is a certified Eden Alternative Educator and a member of the Eden Alternative Board of Directors. He's lectured on dementia and other elder care topics throughout the U.S., Canada, U.K., Denmark, Singapore, and Malta. His book, Dementia Beyond Drugs, Changing the Culture of Care, was released by Health Professionals Press in February of 2010 and it won the 2010 Book of the Year Award from the American Journal of of Nursing. This is a phenomenal book, and if you haven't got your hands on it, you need to go ahead and Google it right now and get this book. Again, it's called Dementia Beyond Drugs. He's also featured in a couple of DVDs with his uh, good friend, uh, Dr. Richard Taylor, who's been living with dementia for several years. And um, Julian with uh, Brilliant Image Productions. And uh, these DVDs are absolutely fantastic as well. Living with Dementia and 20 Questions, 100 Answers and 6 Perspectives. And um, again, I I really would encourage you to go ahead and check those out. Uh, That also won a National Mature Media Merit Award. So thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Power. How are you doing?
2: Great, Lori. Thanks very much.
3: Well, I really appreciate your time with us. I've got a zillion questions, and I'm sure we'll get some from our audience as well, because your topic, um, Dementia Beyond Drugs, is just, um, it's really cutting edge, and people are looking for answers, and I think you you have just done a phenomenal job with your book and your talks and, you know, all of the work that you're doing with Eden Alternative, et cetera. So before we get started, what I'd like to ask you is why did you decide to write the book? What was the need you were seeing?
2: Um, My book really came out of my own personal struggles as much as anything, uh, as much as what I was seeing around me as a practicing physician for many years and particularly working in uh, elder care for many years uh, I have uh, cared for many people living with various types of dementia and I have uh, you know I didn't come from any place of uh, magical enlightenment I've prescribed many antipsychotic drugs and other medications to try to address people's distress and uh, I was never particularly happy with the results I was getting and I was skeptical as to whether we were really Uh, doing everything we could to help people who are living with dementia. And uh, as I struggled with that, I tried to uh, verbalize why I didn't like it and why I thought we needed to get away from this. And it was very hard for me to get my words together in, in a nice coherent fashion. And I tried writing a paper. It almost got published in the biggest geriatric journal in the country. They got down to the last review and then, finally said, Well, it's uh we just for space reasons we can't print it. And I sent it to a couple of my mentors and said, you know, what do I do next? And they they both got back to me and said, You know, Al, this looks like a book. It doesn't look like a paper. There's a lot here. And uh, so I just started writing, and I didn't really know what I was doing or how I was doing it. I thought when you wrote the book it was because you knew a lot about something, but I think I learned more in writing the book and then in speaking about it for two years than I really knew when I started. Uh, but but I just knew that, that there had to be a different way, that what we were doing did not work, and that we just had to break it down and start all over again if we were going to come up with new answers.
3: Well, I think that that's really interesting, your comment in terms of that you, you've you learned so much Um, with your journey with this book. You know, you start out thinking that you've got a good handle and there's just so much more that you learn throughout the process. I think our audience would also like to know, um, Al, have you been personally touched with a family member or friend with dementia?
2: I have at various points in my life and various levels of understanding. You know, I I had uh, grandparents with dementia before I became a doctor, uh, so at that point, I have one level of understanding. Uh, my mother-in-law lived with Alzheimer's while I was working here at St. John's Home, so I had a different level of understanding that is there as well, um, and just lots of uh, uh, more distant relatives and friends whose relatives uh, have lived with dementia too. So I um, certainly have been touched by that.
3: Yeah, I, you know, when you say um, with different levels of awareness throughout your life, I think that's so true, and a lot of times... Caregivers, um, you know, we expect to have all the answers when we when we run across this, and and people like yourself and and like Judy Berry, who will be on next, and myself who have been in the trenches with this for you know so many years. Myself over 30, every day is a learning experience. Um, there there isn't one answer. There is no magic pill. There is no magic formula um, to this. It really is constantly. Raising awareness and I think just um, refining your skill level in terms of figuring out what some of those those triggers are, not just for the person with dementia but for ourselves, um, and coming in a in a settled way um, to to deal with it and to learn how to live with it. Let's get into nursing homes. big issue. You know they're always being criticized for overuse of antipsychotic medications. Can you explain to people? Um, you know, how that came about and and where you think we need to go um, with this situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to start for the listeners by saying that I'm going to um, give you a little different kind of talk than maybe you hear from other physicians. I'm going to challenge a lot of the conventional wisdom here, so just fasten your seatbelts. Um, the first <laughs> thing is that um, we do overuse antipsychotic drugs. These are drugs that were developed in the 50s and 60s for people with schizophrenia, And um, there are newer generations, but they're in the same family. And they've been applied to people living with dementia because often people living with dementia are very distressed or express things that sound bizarre to us, and therefore we kind of uh, conflate the idea of psychosis with with the experience of dementia. And the drugs seem to be the logical conclusion. I'm going to challenge that, I'm sure, as the hour goes on. Um, We do overuse them in nursing homes, but here's the first big secret I want to share with you today, and it is not just a nursing home problem. The reason we're getting all the press right now is because nursing homes have data that can be tracked by the government. We're the only group that can uh, have reported to everybody exactly how many antipsychotics we use. So obviously uh, CMS and Congress are up in arms about this, and I'm not saying it's not justified, but just a couple of comments to start. Number one, uh, there are no bad people here. The people that I've worked with in long-term care are some of the finest people in the world, and I wouldn't still be in this business after over 20 years if I didn't truly believe that. Um, I believe it's a systemic problem, and then the bigger thing is that this is not a nursing home perception of dementia. This is a societal perception. And even though there's limited data out there, the studies I've done and what I've been able to read suggest to me that the actual magnitude of inappropriate Antipsychotic drug use is higher in the community than it is in nursing homes. But we can't measure that, and the outrage is not there. So I think it's not just changing nursing homes. It's really changing the paradigm that society has about what dementia is and how we support people.
3: I, I so agree with this being a societal issue. And one of the things, as you were talking, was how many times do family and loved ones say, give them something, fix this? You yeah. know, and so we really are pushing for, for this answer, for this cure, for our old normal, you know, to, to maintain itself.
2: Yeah, and, it reflects and, things. It not only reflects <laughs> our, our kind of stigmatized view of dementia, but it re- reflects our larger, where society has gone, particularly in the U.S., where every other commercial on TV has got a problem, here's a pill, fast relief, you know. And so we're looking to uh, chemistry to solve more complex problems than it really can.
3: Very true, very true, because there's so much tied into, you know, our attitude and our acceptance on all of this, and, and I'm sure some of that you'll be getting into as the conversation moves on. So when it comes to the nursing homes, you know, like you said, it, it isn't just them. We really can't say that, uh, you know, there's we can't prove that there's uh, more use in the community, but... You know we've got more people out in the community than we do in nursing homes, so you know i would I would tend to have to agree with that heavily because there's very few that I've ever heard of not being on something once they've been diagnosed huh. um, and that doesn't even you know have to be you know combative um initially sometimes I think it's just automatically um put together uh, if needed or not so where do you think we really go um from from this area what would what would your ideal picture Look like um, if you could if you could draw the landscape in the future for how we how we deal with antipsychotics and dementia.
2: Okay, let me let me start. I'm going to take a few minutes here just to give you some background of how I got to where I am because I think I need to lead people into this a little bit. So I'll talk about where I think we are now, how we're stuck in this uh, this um, particular paradigm and what I did to turn that around and kind of the effect that that has on your thinking when you do. Um, We have been operating under what I call a biomedical view of dementia. And just to give you a few of the characteristics of how we as a society see dementia, um, we tend to view it as a constellation of degenerative diseases of the brain. We see it as as, uh, progressive, irreversible, ultimately fatal. and we tend to focus on the losses and the deficits. What is lost? What can the person not do? Um, and as a result of this view, our policy tends to focus on costs and burdens of care for society, for, for uh, family and professional caregivers. And uh, as a result, we also tend to direct most of our funds toward drug research. We want to find some sort of a cure or some way of making this go away. Now, let me just start by saying nothing I just told you is untrue. uh, Those things all happen, but this is a a, a narrow view. This is where we focus our efforts on the loss, the deficits, the decline, the disability, the costs, and tragedy. Um, There is fallout from having a limited view of dementia. Um, One of it is that we see distress primarily as a manifestation of disease, and we look to drugs to create well-being. Another big uh, area of fallout is that we, because we're so evidence-based and because we stigmatize people living with dementia so much, we tend to ignore the subjective experience of people who live with dementia. We tend to discount it because, after all, they're confused. We don't need to hear what they have to say. We're very quick to stigmatize people, and this even happens with the advocates, the doctors and the advocacy societies. In trying to raise awareness, we actually can stigmatize, disempower, and dehumanize people using phrases like the long goodbye and people fading away and the death that leaves the body behind, we actually harm the people that we're trying to help. We're very quick to take uh, autonomy control from people as soon as they have a label, and we tend to create these disease-based approaches to care. Once again, not because we're bad people, but we have this paradigm, this limited view of dementia. And I became aware of this, And uh, as I was working on my book and struggling, I also became aware of another group of voices, and these are the people that I consider the true experts on dementia. I kind of consider myself a student of dementia, and I've moved away from labeling the neurologists and psychiatrists and geriatricians as holding expertise. I think the true experts are the people like Richard Taylor, the people like Christine Bryden, people who actually live with dementia and can explain to us what they're going through. And uh, so I realized I needed to start way back at square one. I needed to take away everything I'd learned in medical school and everything society was telling me and start with a new definition that had no judgment, no labels, no baggage, but just described what's happening in the most neutral terms possible. And so where I started was just saying dementia is a shift in the way a person experiences the world around her or him. Just as simple as that. We are shifting the way we experience the world. And one reason I like that is because it happens to all of us as we grow, as we uh, change jobs, or move from place to place, or meet new people, our perspective can change. And so this is a bridge for us to begin to look into the eyes of people living with dementia and to try uh, as best we can to understand their experience. And uh, what this road does is it takes us to a whole new level of conclusions about people. And uh, I can list some of those, or I can take a breath and uh, give you a chance to interject at this point, Lori.
3: Well, I I love the whole shift in the paradigm and the way that we think, and I think you're so right. We we do live in a world where it's take a pill and look at the negatives and woe with me. And you know, one, of the, one of the things that I really try to do with all of my platforms is to kind of shift caregiving from crisis to comfort because we do view it as a burden um, if we want to admit it or not. And we, we do do a lot of things out of, judgment and guilt, not because we necessarily want to do it or know how to do it. We don't teach people how to live um, as a caregiver, yet each of us is, is born as a as a caregiver. I mean, that's just kind of a, a given as soon as we're, we're in the womb. That that caring is so innate to us as humans. Um, we just take it for granted. But we seem to put it in a different category when someone gets ill, when it's not in a growth period when you know it's not a baby coming into the world and you know um, growing and um, gaining things and so i think it's it's very important um for us to be able to look at things as a whole to be able to maintain human dignity as we come into this life and as we as we leave it because we're all going you know one way or the other And, and i like what you said about um you know just just looking at things different you're only gonna you're only gonna find what you look for, and so if we can't change that mindset, um we don't have any chance at all of changing the heart set, which to me is really the thing that changes our delivery systems because a lot yes. of us can know logically um what to do and why to do it, but we don't feel motivated until it really you know hits our soul. And resonates with us, so uh, we 'd love to hear some of those examples that you have yeah'd
2: be glad and let me, let me just start uh, by once again explaining to the audience out there because I know there are people on this uh, interview that are dealing with the, the realities of living with or caring for someone who lives with some form of dementia, uh, so uh, when I talk about the pauses i 'm not here to sugarcoat the experience or suggest that it 's not challenging. Uh, to live with dementia or to have someone you love living with dementia. But um, there clearly uh, is is uh, a different way that we can look at things. And these are, I'm just going to list, you know, a few things that uh, have come to my thinking. And some of these really came after the book came out. Like I said, my, my awareness has been evolving as I've been thinking this way. But um, – these are some of the things. Uh, I've stopped uh, looking at uh, dementia so much as a fatal disease and more as a person with changing abilities. Uh, And uh, Richard Taylor has said, I'm not dying of a fatal disease, I'm living with a chronic disability. Well, that really opens your landscape, because when you think of dementia as fatal disease, then you're All of your efforts are at how can we get people to live longer, how can we slow the decline. But we know from disabilities that when people live with disabilities, we are trying to help them grow, develop, be educated, find meaningful work. And that changes your landscape of what's possible. Um, It's it's helped me to listen to the voices of the people that can explain how they feel. And the disability model has led me to think about the idea of ramps. And and I'll just quickly explain that what I like to tell people to help them understand is that if you have a tragic accident and become paralyzed from the waist down and can no longer walk, and you're in a wheelchair and come to a building with stairs, uh, what we've done as a society is we've created ramps so people can continue to succeed in our world. The problem with dementia is we're not building ramps. We're putting people in living environments, care environments, based around our view of the world and our operational needs and squeezing them in. And then if they don't uh, if they don't manage, we say they have a behavior problem and we give them these powerful medications. Imagine a guy in a wheelchair at the bottom of a set of stairs with no ramp, wondering what to do, and imagine a doctor and a nurse coming up and saying, well, we walk up the steps, so we want you to walk up too, and lifting him out of the chair and throwing him forward and, Of course, he's going to fall on the ground because his legs don't work anymore. And if he's upset with us for doing that, it would be funny to say, well, he's got a behavior problem. Let's give him a little Seroquel and see if we can calm him down. It sounds funny, but we do that every day in all living environments with people with dementia. And so we have to understand what people need whose experience is changing to continue to engage meaningfully and succeed and to create that as best we can. That is a path to growth, and we don't think about growth and new learning with dementia. Well, people learn new things all the time with dementia, and we have to cultivate that and not ignore it. And I think something you referred to, Lori, is uh, what uh, Jim Mann from Vancouver, a gentleman living with Alzheimer's, an advocate, calls the new normal. It's the end of trying to change people back into who they were and trying to um, um, optimize who you are today. Instead of just ignoring that person because they aren 't the person they were ten years ago, saying, "You know what is our what do we have today, and how do we make the most of every day and it really uh, is a directive to go deeper than just uh, answering distress or or stopping medications, but what are those universal human needs, what are those attributes of well being that we need to fulfill to give somebody a full life and and to me and we 'll talk a little bit more as we go on about well being to me that is the secret it 's not reducing drugs it's not reducing distress the real first step is creating well-being for people whose well-being may be challenged by their illness and by the care system i'll stop there again for a moment and let you jump in i i
3: love i, I love just the visual of the ramps and the story because what a simple way to hit home and um, we are we're trying to force you know uh, square pegs into a round hole and it it doesn't it doesn't work anymore and And none of us, I mean, we're always constantly changing. And, um, you know, we really need to be so much more accepting and focus on people's abilities and enhancing those um, to enrich all of our lives. Because the more we focus on the negative, um, you know, I just find you just kind of go down the rabbit hole and you lose hope and and the fear is created. Um, But for me on my journey with my mom over these years, you know, I've really been able to and, and it didn't happen overnight, but I've really been able to just grow and look at things differently. Um and and it's just been a beautiful thing and it's it's freed me so much as a person who cares from from this big really burden of trying to have to fix something that I can't. And once yeah. you are able to release that, oh my God. You can you can just be a better person because you can you you will allow yourself to be able to actually focus on your relationship and I think so many times you know we just focus on those tasks, and every one of those tasks there's a, there's an emotion tied to it if we want to admit it or not and so even when we think that we're being really person centered and caring for somebody. If you go and ask a caregiver, what do you have to do, they'll rattle off the list, and you can see just from their nonverbals how they feel about it. it Okay, so let me
2: me just give uh, your listeners uh, one little trick that we can start with here. Um, I've been fairly traditional in my use of language just to kind of get everybody on the same page and now i 'm going to start pushing the language and pushing the way we look at things a little bit further and um, so uh, one of the one of the big language changes that i 've used, and you 'll hear Judy using it too Judy 's also on the twenty questions video and uh, also with her experience with her mother, has a lot of great wisdom to share. Um, But this is a term that I first learned from Christine Bryden. Christine Bryden was diagnosed with dementia at age 49 in Australia, has lived with it now for about 18 years, I think, and still speaking and writing about her experiences. And uh, 10 years into her life with dementia, she came up with this term, or maybe she's not the first, but I read it first, and to me it's still the best definition of this term I've ever heard. And it's what she calls care partners or a care partnership. And I'm going to paraphrase what Christine says in her book, Dancing with Dementia. And I think this is really critical. What what Christine says, I'm speaking in her voice, is adopting a sole identity as our caregiver highlights our illness and strips both of us of other identities. We have become caregiver and sufferer in a relationship of codependence. In that relationship, You may soon feel overwhelmed by the multitude of tasks, of planning and preparing for two, of organizing for two, of covering our deficits and grieving our losses, rather than looking for what remains. You can soon become sad, depressed, and in despair. At the same time, if we adopt the sole identity as a sufferer of our illness, we learn helplessness. We lose more function and suffer an excess disability. This will only add to your burdens as a caregiver and exacerbate the problem for both of us. We need to move beyond labeling ourselves as caregiver and sufferer towards a relationship of a care partnership where we accept, adapt, and collaborate on the journey of dementia. In this care partnership, the person with dementia is at the center of the relationship, not alone as an object or merely a recipient of care, but instead we become an active partner in a circle of care. And so I invite people to start to think of their relationship with the person they care for as maybe somebody they care with and to start to challenge uh, exactly what we do. Um, And just a quick story, uh, and I'm sure you're going to have some comments on this, Laurie, but a quick story, um, because I think sometimes people still question, well, is the stigma really that bad? Do we really disempower people? How fast does it happen? I mean, obviously, a person who doesn't know where she is shouldn't be driving a car from Minneapolis to Chicago, but... Let me tell you a story I've been telling recently about a gentleman on the West Coast, and he wrote a book with a couple friends of mine where they interviewed him about his ability to live positively with Alzheimer's. And I want to tell you the story of his diagnosis. Uh, He did not have obvious symptoms, obvious to others. He decided that he was having trouble thinking in certain ways, and he went to the doctor and said, I'm having trouble doing this and this, and I'm concerned about Alzheimer's. Please test me. Well, the doctor put them through the full battery of tests, and a few weeks later they got back together with the results, and the doctor unfortunately said, you know what, Ed, you've got some definite um, deficits here, and I think, as best I can tell, you probably have the beginnings of what we call Alzheimer's disease. Well, this gentleman named Ed Voris was very distressed, as you can imagine, and he took himself, drove himself, right to his local support organization and walked in the door and said to the person at the desk, Hi, I'm Ed Voris. I was just diagnosed by my doctors having early-stage onset Alzheimer, or early stage Alzheimer's uh, disease, and I'm here for some resources and some support. And the person at the desk said to him, I can't talk to you. Come back when you're with a family member. So that oh. is how fast it happens. That's how fast the word takes away your ability to be seen as a functioning human being with agency and rights and uh, responsibilities. And I'll leave you with that and see what you have to say about that.
3: Well, I love that you brought that up and I didn't know where care partner came from. Actually I, I typically use that a lot in my speaking. So I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I think here in the US so many people don't understand even what a care partner is. And um so I kinda of flip flip flop back and forth. But I'm so glad that you made that pronounced and read that from Christine's um Book or writings, whatever that was, because it, it's just I actually brilliant. recited. It.
2: I've read it so many times; I kind of know it now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's absolutely brilliant, and you know, we we give and receive care all the time, and and you know, caregiving it is. It's all about giving away and depleting and and things, but we get so much back. I cannot believe what you know. Both my parents have taught me through their illnesses. My dad with a brain cancer and my mom with dementia, um, they have filled me on a level I didn't even know was available to me. I didn't even know it existed um, in terms of how to be able to communicate with people and how to really enrich your lives. And, and that's just such a gift. And, you know, we have to not lose our relationships to this disease. And I think that's one of the horrible things that is happening out there um, we are losing our, our core essence of, of why we were with this person. If it's a family member or a friend or, or if it's someone we're working with, um, we're losing that intimacy of our relationship um, because we're so uncomfortable and we're so skewed in terms of how we look at this. And you, you know it 's a great thinking. comment
2: Lauren. you just made me think of something i mm-hmm. hadn 't thought of exactly this way before when you said that, and that is you know one of the one of the raps you know the stigmatized raps is that this is a disease that steals the person, and uh you make me think that mm-hmm. it doesn 't steal the person so much as it steals our relationship with the person, our ability yep. to continue to connect to the person and I think that it 's important to see that distinction the person's still there, as you said at the beginning. Uh, how do we best um, continue to engage and connect in the moment and make meaning of every day?
3: Yeah, and the, the you know the loss. So many times, I, I think a caregiver, a care partner, however you want to use yeah. use the term for who, for our listeners, is you know when we think, and, and I, I tell this to people all the time. If you're really honest, and this kind of brings this whole point home, if you're really honest with yourself as as a care partner. And you write down the list of the things that you're going to do. Write down next to each task what your emotional feeling is about that. Do you like doing it? Do you want to do it? Do you look forward to it? Do you get angry? Are you frustrated? Whatever. You will be shocked at the emotions attached to each one of those tasks, even though you've got a smile on your face and you're saying you're willing to do it. And it's are emotions that sidetrack us and take us away from being person-centered because even though we are doing all these tasks for somebody else, emotionally it is all inside, it is all about us. <laughs> what well, is
2: kind of funny about this whole uh, several points you've made in this conversation is that um, I uh, ducked out of a leadership meeting here at St. John's to get to the phone interview, and we had somebody from our local EAP program talking about stress management and talking about the thinking, feeling, behaving dimensions of the brain and uh, how we deal with stress and what happens when we don't deal with stress. And and you're just reflecting so many things that we were just talking about right here in the workplace just uh, about an hour ago.
3: Oh, it's absolutely incredible. So once we can detach from that, one of the the tools I have, Al, I don't know if you're familiar with it's called Your Memory Chip. But it gets people to focus on not the task, but on three things when they're engaging with someone with, with dementia And that is are they safe, are they happy Are they pain free Because when we focus on those three simple things We no longer get frustrated When somebody doesn't know The answer or someone's repeated Something you know 45 times In 10 minutes because they're safe, they're happy They're pain free, it teaches us to let go Of what's yeah. no longer Important um, And we're, we stop trying to fit Kind of that, that square peg into the round hole and it yeah. makes us much less judgmental. Now, I'm going to grab a caller here, if you don't mind.
2: Hey, yeah, how are you doing that? I just, uh, My friend Jane Verity, uh, who founded Spark of Life in Australia, a great program uh, and approach to people living with dementia, says, uh, when all else fails, ask yourself, does it really matter? <laughs> and if it yep. doesn't, everything's right and nothing's wrong.
3: Yeah, and it's amazing how much doesn't really matter when you really focus on your relationship. And and just enhancing that. So let me pull this caller in. We've got a caller from uh, last four digits are 2484. You're live on the air. If you wouldn't mind stating your name and your question or your comment, please.
1: Hi, Lori. My name is Michelle Socio. How are you?
3: Hi, Michelle. Thanks for calling in. Do you have a question for, for Dr. Power? I
1: do because this subject is very near and dear to my heart. Um, my mom has... Had Alzheimer's for 14 years. The first six years she lived with me and was misdiagnosed as bipolar. Um, in 2005 she went to the emergency room and as soon as we mentioned bipolar disorder she was immediately put in the psych ward and drugged for 19 days. Um, after 19 days of being drugged and hallucinating and whatever Uh, They diagnosed her with Alzheimer's disease, and from there, my mother, as a care partner, as you said, decided she wanted to, after the rehab, stay in the facility. I had the opposite problem. We were fighting the drugs, and it was an even alternative uh, facility. And all they did was drug and drug and drug my mother. And it took a lot of, you know, we had to take her out of there, and we moved her, and that's devastating to uh, an Alzheimer's patient, as you know. Um, and how do we get the word out uh, so this doesn't happen to other patients?
2: Yeah, it, it's, a gra- it's a great point, and I guess I can make a couple of points about it. First of all, um, this is our paradigm. Our paradigm is when we see distress, uh, once again, we don't like to see people distressed. Sometimes families are distressed. Sometimes the professional care partners are distressed, and our paradigm is, boy, we got to do something about this, and what's the best pill we can do, and, and um uh, it's really just breaking this thing and saying, this person is, is, what they're suffering is a lack of well-being. How do we fill those domains of well-being? And um, uh, this is, um, when I came out with this book, it was very much a voice in the wilderness. People weren't thinking this way. It's starting to change, but it's a big world out there, and uh, and it takes a lot of voices to start to change the dialogue, and that's why... Uh, Venues like uh, Lori's uh, show here are so important because it gets the dialogue going. And I'll say, as a longtime member of the Eden Alternative Organization, part of the reason I did this was because uh, even Eden Homes do struggle with this because everybody has this same sort of societal pressure that this is the way we see dementia and this is how we respond to it. And uh, what I did in my book was really to take those those core principles that founded the Eden Alternative and other culture change organizations and say, okay, let's take this and let's take dementia and we got to take these principles and we got to take them deeper because the simple transformation that a lot of homes are doing doesn't still get to a large swath of our population. Uh, we got to take these farther, and we got to challenge even more than we have. And it's a, it's a tough journey. So I appreciate that you've been through it. I appreciate your advocacy um, because uh, it's uh, it's something where we've all got to, uh, as my friend Richard says, stand up and speak out.
3: Richard, I have gr- great advice. Um, uh, go ahead, Michelle.
2: No, I
1: was just saying thank you.
3: Okay. Wonderful. Well, thanks, thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. Bye now. Um, um, that is an excellent question, and I think a great point that you you brought up that that even you know a, um, a company like the Eden Alternative, which is just so leaps and bounds against so much of what's going on, still struggles. You know there isn't there isn't a perfection out there in terms of this disease and in shifting our dementia care culture because every staff person, every family member, every individual with dementia is constantly changing. And that all of those factors come into play in terms of how we handle things and how we react to things. And I think sometimes we forget that um, with the multiples of, of variables that we're dealing with in every single situation. It's massive.
2: As, uh, as long as we're, we mentioned Eden Alternative too, one of the things that I am doing to help get the word out through the Eden Alternative organization, although it's not just for Eden Homes, anybody can can do this, is I've developed a two-day course, uh, which is based on my book. And we're going around uh, teaching this. I'm teaching it myself, and I'm training other Eden educators to deliver the course. And uh, actually, it was just last week in Nashville, we got a... Uh, large grant from CMS you know they when they get fines from nursing homes for not being up to standards they put this money in a pool and you can use this pool for grants and so we got a large grant uh... for the state of tennessee to deliver my course to at least two staff members from every single nursing home in the state uh... they're paying for two people and other people can attend as well and we also got people from six or seven or eight other states coming in Nashville last week, too. And so we're going to be doing this three or four times around the state of Tennessee, and we're hoping that uh, other states will pick it up. I mentioned before we got on air that uh, I'm teaching this course in Australia uh, next May. I'm teaching it in Nova Scotia uh, next spring as well. Uh, So we're trying to get the word out, and and what this does is it goes beyond the philosophical stuff that you and I were talking about in an hour and really gets into a lot of the practical hands-on tips. So, for instance, um, I loved your three points for caring with somebody. Uh, I have three points for personal care that I share not only with staff members but also family care partners, and that is the word C, S-E-E. The S stands for slow down uh, because usually we're going on our schedule and not the schedule the person can manage. Uh, The first E stands for empower, and that is have the person retain choice, control, direction, acceptance throughout any care activity. And the second E stands for engage. It's not just doing a task on the body. It's talking to the person, it's developing relationships, sharing stories, um creating that kind of uh positive interaction that uh, helps the person to appreciate that there's really care being given, not just a task on a body,
3: yeah, and that they and that they still belong and have purpose, and that they can um, yes. still interact and engage with us i mean we I think sometimes we just think it's so one sided and, um, you know, it's it's kind of amazing, you know, for me, and like I said, I've been on this journey a long time, 30 years with my mom, and, you know, she's been in a nursing home for 11, she's been in her end stages for four, and, you know, communication is, is close to nothing at this point um, compared to what it used to be. But yeah. she communicates with me on a whole different level. She's taught me to look for different right. things. It's there.
2: It's different, but it's there.
3: And, you know, exactly. I, I try to
2: remind people that the things we label as difficult. If someone actually pushes you away or strikes out at you, they're actually exercising choice. They're expressing their opinion in a way that they can because they can't express it the other way or they can't control what's happening. And so we have to reframe our view of them As exercising choice. If I can just jump in before the time gets too short and just run through when I say well-being. Well-being can be defined 10 million different ways. And this is not the only way, but I use what we call seven domains of well-being that we came up with through EDEN. And they are identity, growth, autonomy, security, connectedness, meaning, and joy. And what I do, um, one of the things I teach that kind of goes backwards from, you know, how do you take drugs away or how do you respond or react to somebody's uh, distress or behavior is to say, turn your back on all that and look at these seven domains, the seven glasses, which have all been emptied somewhat because of the illness, because of the care approach, identity, connectedness, growth, meaning autonomy, security, joy, and start filling those glasses. Start figuring out what you need to do, and when you do that, The person gets better, the distress gets better, even without necessarily attacking the distress head on and without using medication. And the other point that you touched on is that it's um, because you talked about how people kind of rush through things and how the task becomes more important than the person. Um, A lot of that comes from the way, uh, particularly in professional care settings, the way our operations push people in that direction. And that's why the one thing I can say about my book that's unique among books, uh, even person-centered books about dementia, is I spend a lot of time talking about transforming the care environment, what nursing homes call culture change. And that is how do you switch operations to uh, reflect your new philosophy? Because uh, I can tell you, you bring new philosophies into an institutional environment, the institution will kill them every time. (laughs) Um, As Upton Sinclair said a long time ago, it's hard to get someone to understand something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it. And so uh, unless we actually transform the operations of our care environment, and this also has its counterparts in home and community living too, uh, unless we change that whole process, we can talk person-centered all we want, but it doesn't succeed.
3: Don't you think in order to shift that, that culture, we really have to open the door? I mean, everybody talks about, oh, I've got an open-door philosophy, and oh, you can come in and talk to us about anything. We want to hear your ideas. Um, but, but that really isn't embraced. I mean, One of just, my
2: mentors says, close the open door with you on the outside. <laughs> Because what the open door policy says is i 'm a very busy person, my door is open, so any anytime you want to talk to me, you can inconvenience yourself and come to me and i 'll put down what i 'm doing for a moment and listen to you that 's not the same as proactively coming to people and saying how 's it going? What can I do to help?" Uh, I got anything you want to share with me? What's your opinion about this? As you say, uh, it's uh, it's this is one of those things. We look at job descriptions. We look at performance evaluations. If our performance evaluations measure people on tasks, we can't expect them to develop relationships. Uh, everything has to change, and this is why... I say reduction of medications is the last thing you do. The first thing you do is see the person differently, interact with them differently, transform operations so you can support a new way of interacting, and then you'll see the ability to remove medications. But as that um, somewhat boneheaded study in the New England Journal a few weeks ago showed, if you take a bunch of people on antipsychotics and just stop them and don't give them anything else, guess what? They're going to become more agitated. And um their conclusion was I guess we need those drugs. The real conclusion is you need to do something else before you remove drugs to make well-being occur in all environments.
3: Yeah, it needs to be a balanced plan. It's it's not you know, it's not that black and white. And um <clears throat> and I think excuse me, <clears throat> we're going to have Judy on uh next Judy Berry who just does, it does an excellent job in terms of you know, helping remove those drugs, and I think we'll be able. Yeah, to. Yeah, Julie, we'll
2: bring it down to ground level and really show you how it's done in a, a real living environment.
3: Yeah, it's it's so funny. One of the examples I use uh, when I go in for training with with staff is say, you know, how many of you give out medications, and and you know, the you know, most of the hands will go up, and and I'll say, and, and how many of you are handing those pills off and looking for your next person. You know, you're not even giving eye contact to the person half the time. You know, you've got the pills up to the mouth or you're doing whatever. You've done all your checks, so you know you got the right person, but you're already gone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're mm-hmm. already
3: gone. You haven't completed the task, and you're already on to the next.
2: Uh, one of the things I teach in my courses is so critical. It doesn't matter whether you're a professional or a family member. You have got to master the idea of mindfulness and presence whenever you interact with a person. We are so used to multitasking and thinking about what we just did and where we're going next that we are not – mentally present to the person we present ourselves to. And if you have communication difficulties, you can sense when that person is not there with you and it shuts you right down. And so the first thing I tell people is you've got to come up with whatever it takes for you to learn how to center yourself and be present in the moment and fully engage before you approach a person, or else you're not going to get anywhere.
3: That's that's very true. I think the other thing, oh, gosh, i got a frog in my throat here today. <clears> throat> I think one of the other things that we really have to Focus on is a person with dementia is not that different from us. And, and everyone thinks, oh, they're so different. And it's like, well, they're no different than a person with diabetes or with heart disease or whatever. We still engage and we all use the same formula. It, you know, we just, it, it goes through our brain and processes different, but we all use the same formula. You know, when we react to things, it's our current attitude plus our past experiences. Equal our um reaction, and mm-hmm. our reaction if if it's not liked, is termed the behavior and we have to really look at what are those triggers and yeah. um yeah that's, uh, that's
2: why I wrote this definition that really really brings about our similarities, not our differences. I agree 100%. We put people in the box and we say they have a disease. We don't understand them. And the truth is we're more like people than we are different all the time. And uh, uh, an interesting feedback I got, I brought my course uh, a couple months ago to Denmark and taught it to a group in Denmark. And, uh, you know, they're they're pretty good with English over there. So fortunately I was able to do my usual talking and slow down a little bit and get the message across. But beginning of day two I was a little concerned, how is this going over in a different culture? And so I uh, just stopped at the beginning and I said, tell me how is this how's this going with you? How, how do you feel about the information you're getting? And a nurse raised her hand, and she's someone who was not new to nursing. She'd been doing it for quite a while. And she said something. She said, you know what, this is the first time in my career I've ever seen people with dementia as normal people. And I thought, well, you know, I've never heard that before, but that's kind of cool, because if you're trying to remove stigma and see the whole person, that's exactly what we want to do.
3: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We've got a comment here from Harry Urban. Harry is a, is a good friend, and he um, he does the Dementia Chats with us, which is a webinar where people can come and ask questions of someone living with dementia. And he said he's so happy to hear you speak he says he's the first professional that i've heard who gets it and we're <laughs> we're all fighting for these things so he just really thanks you and then um i got to tell you there is somebody... nothing
2: more validating for me than to get a compliment from a person who has lived with dementia you know when i first met richard taylor we were speaking in singapore and um I, he came to my talk and I really wanted to know what he thought. You know, the, when the other doctor said that was a great talk, that's nice. But when a person with dementia says it, then you know you've made a connection that, that maybe others haven't made.
3: Yep, and others are agreeing with him as well. We also have a comment uh, from a, looks like Aruba. Um, there's a tendency to respond to a caregiver's stress through medication. Um, of the person with Alzheimer's. It seems that we use the medications as a cure. This is a brilliant point a cure the caregiver or the care partner's Oh, yeah, who the are we birthplace. treating? Yeah. My first
2: comment for Aruba is invite me down there to speak,
3: please. <laughs> hey, Last February, my speaking
2: gigs were Edmonton, Alberta, and Anchorage in Juneau, Alaska, so I obviously need a new booking agent. But I think that the, the point is correct is that often our response to distress is what I would call staff-centered or family-centered rather than Um, Mm -hmm. person-centered. Once again, the person we identify as the problem is the one who keeps us from getting our tasks done. And so what we're doing is treating our ability to then go ahead and do our tasks rather than giving the person the well-being they need. And that's exactly, I I, I appreciate that point. That's exactly why I focus on well-being, not on the distress. The distress is only a symptom. And to treat that is like treating pneumonia with cough syrup. You're treating the symptom mm-hmm. and not the real problem. So I think that the key is once again it goes back to creating well-being for that person, 24/7. Not a quick, you know, folding laundry for a half hour or or pet a cat and then take it away. It's it's about what can you do to change that person's experience of the world and engage meaningfully with it all the time, and um, that requires a big change in the way we think and the way we act.
3: Definitely, and you know, you had mentioned. <clears throat> kind of meditation and being more um, mindfulness. Do you, excuse my throat, I don't know what's going on. That's okay. Do you you, um, recommend people do some meditation, Um, even, you know, for the person with dementia in terms of calming themselves down and just, you know, we're so not used to being quiet. And, you know, we feel really uncomfortable when it's quiet. There's two real
2: good reasons to do that, two or three real good reasons. First of all, I do Mm -hmm. recommend people do what works for them, and I think it's all different. Uh, For instance, I always had trouble doing yoga because I'm just such a hyper person. What I do is I do Tai Chi because Tai Chi is meditation and movement, and I don't have to sit still and empty my brain. I can focus on a certain series of steps or certain images in the case of Qigong, and so that works for me. For other people, it's deep breathing or a slow count or using imagery. Uh, whatever works, but I do think that people have to do something. Um, the two benefits of that, number one, you make better connections with the person, you're more open to what they say, what they feel, but also it really helps you with really difficult work. This is hard work, caring for a person who is who is struggling with the limitations that, that dementia brings to them, and um, to do it all the time is hard for all of us, and so we can renew ourselves and replenish ourselves by doing this as well. It's it's good for our own health as well as the health of the person we're caring with.
3: Well, and I know for myself I, I, I do a lot of different things because it depends on my mood or it might depend on where I'm at. Um, but I've really tapped into being okay with being quiet, in fact, looking forward to it and just putting things into perspective, clearing that chatter in my head, um, I I actually went on a retreat one time and we had a you know, there was no talking for like twenty four hours, which was a short That's time for some yeah. retreats. But I had such a hard time re entering our world. I thought I thought my body was gonna explode going to the airport because of the noise level that was so common, but it it actually took me it was the most beautiful retreat. It was just this quiet setting in eighty acres and and um, you know, for a week of just all she heard was birds. You know, oh, and the animals, and the wind, and you just listened at a different level. And I, it, it, it was just, it took, it almost took my breath away. It was just so poignant, and then so difficult, you know, to have all this overstimulation, which is a lot of what we talk, you know, people with dementia yeah. are are dealing with. And it was so difficult to live within that world. I, I thought I was going to burst and literally it took me like two weeks to be able to go, okay, I can get used to this again.
2: I can can imagine. That brings up two points I'd like to make. The first one is that the other value of this mindfulness with people is that sometimes what people need when they're distressed is not to do something. Everybody says, oh, what's the checklist of activities? What can I do with them? A lot of times it's just being. It's just sharing a quiet presence with somebody. And, And unless we're good at being, we cannot let our sense of calm uh, infuse the person that we're with. Uh so you don't have to do something. It can just be sitting and looking out the window or holding a hand or breathing quietly and helping that person to enter your calm space. Um the other point I want to make is that we do live in chaotic environments and boy if you go into long-term care, acute care, uh if you just go with your uh, with your ears open to the the background sounds you hear not only the quantity and quality, but but even the tones of the voices as people speak to each other. And imagine living there 24-7 and experiencing that. It is uh, the, the acoustic environment is huge for people living with dementia. And I would even go as far as to say it's huge for the rest of us. And I call people with dementia canaries in the mind because if they're reacting to a negative, chaotic environment, chances are it's working on us too. It's working on our blood pressure, our stress levels, our ability to tolerate, uh, you know, uh, work and burdens. And... Um, we should let that distress be a reminder to all of us that we need to heal the environment we're in for everybody.
3: Very true. Very, very true. The other thing is I think that we forget so often all of our nonverbals and how that can affect the next person, even when we think we're hiding them and we're doing yeah. well. You know, People with dementia I think
2: are actually much more attuned to nonverbal communication than people without because we're... We're processing so many other things at the same time. When you have trouble communicating, you are very attuned to that. And I think, once again, when we try to approach somebody who's distressed and, and it doesn't get better or gets worse, it's usually because we're carrying something with us that they're reading louder than our words are getting to them.
3: Exactly. Well, it's kind of like with someone who's blind or deaf, you know, they make up in other areas. Um, exactly. You yeah, I've used
2: that have metaphor myself.
3: Yeah, you had mentioned, you know, about it's okay to be quiet. And, and Harry Urban has just, I, I just love him to death because he, he comes up with the most poignant things. And I'll never forget him saying, you know what? I liked sitting in my garden before I got dementia. Smelling the flowers, taking in the colors, listening to the wind blow. I still like it now. I don't have to be busy all the time, you know, and I think so many times we think they have to be busy because then we're doing something. We're trying to still fix it, and it's really not broken. It just needs adjustment.
2: Yeah. You know, I I encourage anybody to contact me. I usually have my website up there or my my email up there for viewing. You can certainly share it, and I'd love to hear more from Harry because he sounds like another person I could learn a lot from, I think, Uh, It reminds me, I heard about a neurologist in California, I don't know his name, but he sees people regularly living with dementia for their periodic visits. And he does his usual litany of review of symptoms and how are you doing and what are you having trouble with. But he always asks one question. He always says to people, what can you do better now than you could before you had dementia? And apparently he almost always gets a positive answer from somebody when he asks that question.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think what Harry
2: talked about is one of those things. The appreciation of the moment, noticing the little things that most of us filter out because we're focused on other things or we're multitasking. It's that presence that, you know, we pay money for mindfulness classes and yoga and tai chi. People with dementia can just snap their fingers and they're there. I mean, we can learn a lot from people about presence.
3: Oh, very, very much so. Well, and the other thing is how many times do you sit with a loved one and watch a movie or have dinner or you know whatever it is and not a word is said and it's just being together that brings you that level of comfort and serenity and safety and you know what more is there than that i mean that's yeah. such a huge piece at our core of what we all want and and we're forgetting that and we mm-hmm. really we, we really need to I I don't know. In my mind, I think we've made this so complicated, and it really is very simple if we just go back to the basics.
2: Um not a Richard
3: Taylor.
2: Uh Richard mm-hmm. is so uh so great at this and he, he complains a lot about reminiscence where people come and kinda of quiz family members about do you know who this is, do you remember this or that? Because I think for us that kinda of convinces us the person's still there if they can remember certain things. But the person is always there whether they remember or not. And what Richard says is my primary struggle is to find meaning in today. And when he goes to nursing homes and visits people with dementia, he says to them, why did you get out of bed this morning? What was it that made you want to get up and engage in today? And I think if we put our focus on creating that meaning in today, um, and then when it comes to reminiscence, um, instead of quizzing people, what I suggest people do is, Talk like a sports reporter. Sports reporters never ask questions. They always make a statement like, uh, oh, boy, Coach, that was a pretty tough game out there, and then they stick the mic in the person's face. But what you can do when someone has trouble remembering is instead of our typical conversations where we ask, what did you do this weekend, where did you go, we can just make observations and give the person space to fill in as they're able rather than putting them on the spot with lots of fact-finding. And uh, it's a different way to converse, but it's engaging more in the moment, and it's more everything's right. The person doesn't have to remember exactly the way you do. I tell people you don't have to have dementia to remember something different. You only have to be married, <laughs> because it <laughs> happens all the time. That's not the way it happened, you know. And, and rather than focusing on the facts, uh, focus on on the presence, the feelings, and the meaning in today, and uh, create the best today you can.
3: Yeah, learn to to play in their playground. It's it's such a gift. It's such a gift to be present. And I, I really truly think and I know that there's a lot of negativity wrapped around Alzheimer's and dementia, but I, I really truly believe this disease is here to teach us new ways and to really yep. enhance our lives in terms of how it's we can do a care it.
2: partnership. No, it teaches us how to live too. It really
3: Oh. Is so much. It. So so much. Well, I can't believe that our time has flown by. Is there any uh, last minute things that you want to tell people? We definitely want to talk with people uh, and let them know how to get how to get a hold of you. And we um, highly recommend the book "Dementia Beyond Drugs: Changing the Culture of Care." It's absolutely phenomenal, and you will not be disappointed with this book. So, any any last minute. Um, Tips or comments that you'd like to make, Alan?
2: Oh, people, how to get a hold of me if they have questions or comments? Um, the, the, my email address is a power a p o w e r, uh, no s, just power like the switch on the TV, and then at, and then our domain is Saint John's Living, and that's spelled S T J O H N S L I V I N G with no punctuation or spaces, and it's .org. A power at Saint John's Living dot I have a website, l .net. Uh, I also have a blog uh, with Eden founder Bill Thomas. The blog site is at changingaging.org. That's tricky because there's all those Gs in there, changing, aging. But um, I I post things. I'm actually typing one up now. about antipsychotics again, which will probably go up later today. Um, my last thing is just that you know, thank you all for, for what you do, all the care that you give, and just remember, um, uh, just remember. I guess the dedication I put in my book. I dedicated my book to the people I consider my greatest teachers, and those are the people I've known and cared for who live with dementia. I think if we instead of just looking pe- at people with dementia as charity cases, but as people who are still there, still engaging with us. Uh, part of our lives, teaching us every day, um, it can open up a whole new world. And it's not always easy, and it's often sad, but um, that's life, <laughs> and uh, that's all of life. And so I just want to uh, thank everybody for all you do and uh, keep it up.
3: Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. And, um, again, I want to remind people of your uh, your tip of uh, C, slow down, empower, and engage. I think that that's just uh, so great, and that's just one of many, many things um, that Al has shared with us today. So again, thank you so much for your time, and have a have a brilliant day.
2: It's a pleasure. Thanks, Lori.
3: Bye now. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest here, and he will not be in. Uh, Disappointed with her at all. Judy Berry is the founder of Lakeview Ranch, uh, a model of specialized dementia care, and she's the founder and CEO of Lakeview Ranch Inc. and Lakeview Ranch Healthcare. She's the executive director of the Dementia Care Foundation and a dementia care consultant. Uh, Judy is a great friend of mine, and I she's just one of those people who is a mentor, she has um, really lived and breathed uh, this journey on a personal level and has made it her mission in life uh, to really restore dignity to the lives of those living with dementia and also their care partners, uh, because I think digni- dignity can be lost at both levels. She teaches professionals and family uh, care carers how to communicate effectively, validating feelings and meeting emotional and spiritual needs in addition to the physical needs of, of the person with dementia. Uh, Judy won the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Community Health Leaders Award and which uh, this is a <coughs> excuse me honor to individuals who have overcome daunting odds to improve health and quality of life for those living in disadvantaged communities across the United States. And then in 2011, she was named the Purpose Prize Fellow in recognition for her success as a social entrepreneur over 60 who is just making significant changes. So welcome to the show today, Judy. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Laurie. Thank you for asking me to be a part of this. I really want to make... um, tell Dr. Al Power that his um contribution to this was just phenomenal. I gain knowledge every time I talk with other people that are on this journey of advocating for um a different concept and a different way of care. So I do appreciate that and um I appreciate everything you do and um just want to say hello to all the listeners and um, hope they can gain something from my experience.
3: Oh, they will, Judy. I'm going to have you just first tell people your personal experience and how you how you got to where you are, why you're doing what you're doing.
0: Oh well, my personal experience goes back a number of years. Um, I was a um, single person traveling with my job. I was a barbecued rib salesman, had nothing to do with healthcare. And got a call one day that my mother um had O D'd on her medications and was in the hospital. And I did immediately come back from where I was working in Texas and um got to the hospital. Obviously you know, it wasn't life threatening but um, it was the instance that changed my life because I was told that my mother could no longer be living in assisted living like she had been. And, um, you know, the journey started there. My life changed. Her life changed. Um, I had been one of these family members who, under pressure, had promised her she would never have to go to a nursing home. And um, all of a sudden, here I was with three days to find placement for her. I wasn't in a position to quit my job and be able to stay and take care of her. So, in fact, she did wind up going to a nursing home. And in the nursing home, within two days, she had gotten, they called me, I had gone back to my work and they had called me and said that she got away that she wasn't outside the building, but that they couldn't find her. And um, it, she actually had just managed to get in the elevator and go down to the basement of the nursing home where they had a volunteer coffee shop. And in her normal way, she convinced everybody there that she was another volunteer. So she <laughs> tended to go. She spent the rest of the next four hours while they're frantically looking for going with other volunteers to all different floors and doing volunteer work for the other um, residents in the nursing home. And, you know, because of that situation and the fact that they were liable for her safety, obviously, um, they informed me that um, they had to put her in a locked unit. And that began the chaos of the next seven years and the pain and just heartbreaking Um, situation that didn't really need to happen. She was put in a locked unit, a small hallway with uh, rooms, you know, a few rooms on either side, and told that she wasn't going to ever leave there, that this was her home now. And to make a long story short, she went berserk, and I guess Mm -hmm. I would too. Um, She was fighting everybody and... um, it took about two weeks of that, and they had put her back in the hospital, which then started the journey over the next seven years. She got kicked out of 12 places. She was in and out of psych units. She, I learned, because I knew nothing about dementia at the time, I learned that what psychotropic drugs can actually do to people and change their whole um way of being and eliminate their ability to respond to you in any way that, um, or, you know, it it covers up their need and they're not able to respond to you. So this was a struggle that I lived um, and she lived for 12 years. It was pretty... um, She was completely dehumanized, that was my opinion. Um, She was in places where the caregivers were the nicest people you'd ever want to meet but were limited because there were not enough staff that um, were able to meet the needs, even the physical needs sometimes, of the people that they were caring for. And um, what... I was told was when I would ask that they just take time to sit with her or or validate her, I would be told I was a family member in denial and that the behavior that she was exhibiting was brought on by her brain damage. And um, it just was something that I could never accept because I knew my mother And she was emotionally needy before she got dementia. And Mm -hmm. so I realized that her behavior was coming from unmet emotional needs. Not, you know, because they would tell me, we just fed her, we just took her to the bathroom, there's nothing wrong. Her needs were emotional. And that is the one thing that I saw in all of the 12 different places that she went to that were supposedly specializing in dementia care um, that was missing. There were not enough staff to meet the emotional needs in addition to the physical needs. So during that process, I didn't have money, and I wanted to try to start something to bring her into, and I did get a mobile home and put it on a small piece of property I had because she didn't want to live with me she wanted her own place so I tried that I hired people that said they had lots of experience in dealing with dementia and what I learned was that um, there hardly at that point 20 years ago were people that understood this new what's becoming a new thing now, that people are focusing on someone's emotions and the causes of behavior. So, you know, for me, it was a life-changing experience. Um, I was 55 when I decided to quit selling barbecue ribs and try to do something different because I was tired of feeling like I'll you do is complain about it not being okay, and everybody was telling me that what I was imagining a environment that was comfortable, safe, and met the emotional and spiritual needs in addition to physical needs was, wasn't possible. And so um, those of you that know me a little bit probably know if you tell me no, I'm going to try that much harder. <laughs> And so I did on a shoestring. I started, um, found somebody to loan me money to build a home. And, you know, it hasn't been an easy 14 years, but I can't even begin to tell people what a difference it can be when you understand what's behind any type of behavior.
3: Yeah, Michelle was making a comment. She said drugs have taken away her mom's quality, and she's slapped them tooth and nail. She said, I was told that they just weren't used to having families being involved in a patient's care. And she said three places for mom and a psych stay for 10 days, you know, to regulate the over-medication. I mean, that's just that's so horrific on so many levels. And, And one of the things that... You know, Judy, in your story, and we've come a long, long ways. You've been on this road a long time, like I oh, have yeah. too, in terms of how people perceive things. But when you talk about, you know, your, your mom's great escape, you know, and, and then she went yeah. to volunteer. She went to find purpose, and they took yeah. that away from her. Yet she probably fit in fine, and there wasn't any incidents until all of a sudden they realized she wasn't who she thought she was. Mm-hmm. And so one of yeah. the one of the things that I think we have to um kinda do is grab our fascination with um CSI and and all those murder mysteries and castles and things like that is put on the detective hats, guys. And yeah. look at the clues. There are so many clues. And we're walking right over them and we're putting them back in a box. And it's like it's amazing when you Sit down and you like like Al said, quiet yourself and Mm -hmm. be present. They just slap you in the face. I mean, you can't ignore them. They are not subtle.
0: Um, And you know, we've found through the the 14 years now that I've operated the ranch and we've been, it's been a learning um, thing to develop the Lakeview Ranch model of specialized dementia care. It didn't just happen. We opened this home. I found 15 health care staff that were willing to step in and try to make it different by focusing on something other than the tasks of taking care of somebody. And it's, you know, I'm the first one to say this isn't about me. Um, I have had right now we have two residential homes we've got 30 residents we have 85 staff people that are taking care of them and when staff are um frontline direct care staff are given the tools that they need and the support that they need they can do this it has they have accomplished 500% more than i ever ever expected could happen they have people in late, with late-stage dementia playing instruments because well, if they've done done it all their life, they don't lose that musical ability.
3: Well, and when I came out to visit you, I saw that. I saw a woman who looked pretty much like she was in a, almost a catatonic state
0: mm-hmm. play the
3: piano. Yeah. And, you know, it took a few minutes, but, you know, we asked, would she play for me? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden there was a glint in the eye and just a really subtle smile, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden she was playing the piano. And, I mean, I thought I was just, I, I thought I was going to lose it. It was so moving, and it was just, it was such a connection. Oh, it was this brilliant moment.
0: And part that happens in an understaffed environment is that the staff people don't have the time to do the the things that are necessary to assist people to have purpose, you know um, they need that, and they become because of the perceptions, you know, I guess one of the major barriers that I've seen during this process of fourteen years in developing this model has been that we have to spend an inordinate amount of time. Um, debunking the myths that even staff people come in with that that person in later stage disease is no longer there. And well, go ahead. Oh,
3: go ahead, Judy. Um, well, I was just going to say, I think one of the things that you do beautifully with your staff and with your families is that you listen. You yeah. you don't go in and say, this is the Judy Berry model.
0: Oh, you say yeah.
3: this is this is the goal, and we are gonna make connections, and you need to look for those sparks and then mm-hmm. we're gonna make that spark a fire yep. and and you do a brilliant job at working with everyone to get on that same page and and we
0: do that um by modeling, you know it's sometimes when you have Caregivers, whether it's family or care partners that are in this um, with you, it takes modeling behavior um, and how to communicate with someone. Um, and with our staff people, it's taken ongoing mentoring. You know, I get frustrated when I hear people talking about, okay, we're going to change the rules, so now there has to be ten hours of dementia care instead of eight. That's nothing, and the piece that appears to be missing as I've gone to other places and talked, I speak around train staff at other places, is they don't have the support necessary for them to actually spend that kind of time with each resident. And mm-hmm. as people progress with dementia, they they're still there, the same human being they have always been, and they're losing their ability to communicate it. And so when they get to a place where they can't communicate and you believe that they're no longer there as the same person, it has a direct correlation on how much energy you spend to try to communicate on an emotional level. And as we've learned, the further advanced someone gets with dementia, the more their communication is emotional. Even Mm -hmm. when they can speak, sometimes the words um, say something like if they say they want to go home and they're repeatedly saying they want to go home and they're already home. And family caregivers are going, you know, wow, what am I going to do? You know, all they're talking about is the emotion of not liking the place that they are in physically. They want to feel safe. They want to feel, um, you know, normal again. And those are things that if we get caught up in the words, we're trying to fix the wrong thing.
3: Yep. Yep, Harry says, bingo. We've got a couple other comments here that I just want to read. Yep. um, Out. let's see, where did they go? Aruba is saying the family of each patient are really the only ones to educate the nursing home on how to deal and understand with a loved one because each person develops the syndrome differently, and this would prevent nursing homes kicking a person out if they would take the time, you know, to listen. Yeah. Uh, Judy Lamont says, Judy, you've done a fantastic job. You understand that a 12 to 15 patient uh, to aid ratio um, doesn't work, and mm-hmm. um, you know it's it's amazing that this whole emotional connection. I, I've come up with a tool called the Conscious Caring Checklist, and mm-hmm. it basically takes Maslow's theory and it breaks it down to all of our needs. And it's it isn't anything fancy. I've really taken what he what he's outlined and just said, start asking yourself some questions, you know. Mm -hmm. And when you start asking yourself some questions regarding those needs, so many times you can figure out what it is that's missing. And as a person, you know, progresses with this disease, you know, their needs change. Their level of needs change. And so they're not at maybe our level of needing certain things anymore. And that's okay. Okay. There's nothing wrong with
0: that. Well, the thing that we have to do is, um, you know, and I talk to staff about this all the time, is you have to let go of our expectations about what, how they should respond or what they should do. And in most cases, as having been a family care partner and um, now, you know, professionally for 14 years, I have... I understand our need to want to walk in and have our loved one recognize us by saying our name. And when they no longer can do that, family members are going through all this stress that doesn't need to be there because they do know who you are. They just no longer can put words to it or they may try to put a word by calling you someone else. And, you know, we have to just let go of our expectations and be with them where they are, understand that, yes, they know us, even if they can't say our name, and, uh, and validate if, that.
3: Yeah. And if we don't understand that we are more than a name, we have some bigger issues than dementia.
0: hmm
3: I mean we well, we really ha- have to realize what our relationships are about and it's not it's not a name it's not you know it's not a status thing it's it's so much deeper than that and we don't judge a small child when they don't know our name yes you know and, go, and no. part
0: of what happens too is that it's a real struggle to change the way you think about the world you know we've learned mm-hmm. all of us in different Areas have learned to survive in society by responding and acting in certain ways, whether it's healthy or not healthy. And um, it's hard to let go of that and to just go, like you say, be present, be mindful Mm -hmm. of their need, not your need, and um, be able to support that.
3: It is it is tough, and it's um, it's amazing the things that you learn, you know, through through the journey, um, you know, on the process that you don't even know you've learned. I, I'm sure you you've run across this. I, I've run across it many times where I didn't even know that my my mind and my attitude had shifted until someone else makes a comment to me and then it yeah. was like oh my gosh i didn't even know that i don't look at it like you do anymore
0: but yeah thank you and for it's like the out. light comes on and yeah. and yet for family members and people out there all i can say is when that can happen even though it's a lot of work to get to that place then you have the opportunity of having some joy in your life with your loved one when we no longer keep them to our expectations, when we're able Mm -hmm. to just be with them. And for us, we deal with our specialty is people who have been, like my mother, kicked out of many other places and in and out of hospitals. And we have a 93% success rate of eliminating behavior. But the reason we're able to do that is because we focus proactively you know it's not um, that we do anything that's rocket science we just go back to developing the trusting relationship with that resident again making them feel safe listening to them letting them know that we are there for them and validating their humanness you know if you think about people in an understaffed long-term care facility where people are just running past them they're not they're being devalued they're not even um dehumanized you know it's like they're just a bump sitting in a chair and people thrive on validation you know it's yeah. like al was saying when the gentleman who has dementia said what he did about al you know mm-hmm. it's that validation that we all need as human beings and they don't lose it because they have dementia. They need it until the very day that they take their last breath. Yeah, just like the
3: rest of us. Just like the rest and, of us all you ones. know,
0: when there mm-hmm. when there is a behavior, the behavior is coming from an unmet need. And like yep. you said, we have to be detectives, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: have to get to know the person well enough to have a idea what that unmet need might be, but the one thing that I mention is that even if you can't figure out what that need is, I can almost guarantee, because we've tried it many, many times with our residents, we don't know exactly what the need is, but just go there with them. Tell them you recognize their frustration. You recognize they're sad. You recognize Mm -hmm. they're angry. And that you're there for them, and that can change the whole pattern of how someone responds by just validating the emotion mm-hmm. and being able to say, "I can see you're sad." Um, I think about this in terms of if you, Lori, are sitting here in my, you know, in my living room, and you start crying and I walked up to you and said, oh, come on, Lori, let's go bake cookies, I'm dehumanizing you. I'm ignoring the feeling that's obvious and not even recognizing that. And that happens so often to people with dementia because the care, care partners don't remember, keep reminding themselves that there is that emotion behind what they're doing.
3: Well and don't you think part of part of it is is the other person doesn't want to feel uncomfortable and so they want to shake you out of it. And they don't they don't mm-hmm. want to because I mean so many people in my family didn't happen to be one of them, but I mean so many people were raised that you there's certain things you don't discuss, you know, you don't yes. you don't yeah. cry, you don't share your dirty laundry, you don't do this, you know, you just sit mm-hmm. in. You talk when you're spoken to and um you know they don't know how to deal with these emotions and when well and, you know, and that's
0: something that we're very upfront with when we hire staff is and one of the major things we look for because all the um caregiving things can be taught if somebody really wants to but we're looking for the person who is emotionally available who is able to connect with the people on an emotional level and we talk very openly about that and it doesn't make them a bad person if they can't but they're not good in the environment that we've created and um the other thing that i think is huge and i just had a phenomenal experience um a few weeks back i was in pennsylvania training some home health aides. But the first time that I've ever done it with an interpreter, because they were Korean, they were mm-hmm. Cambodian, they were chinese, and um it was amazing to me. I learned so much because we have to take into consideration the cultural differences, and one size fits all is never gonna work for everybody and. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband happens to be Kenyan, and we go to Kenya and we um, meet with families there and try to help them deal with some of the things. But it's, you know, some of the people in the different tribes, they think it's something superstitious, you know, like somebody Mm -hmm. put a curse on them or something. And you have to respect that. You have to respect that and find a way to support them and... Um, interject some other ways of thinking, you know, without Mm -hmm. putting down what they think. And Mm -hmm. with these Korean, I mean, it was caregivers and family members, and um, I learned so much, even about things that, that I go out and say, you know, get right close to somebody, hold their hand, touch them, look in their eyes. Well, in one of, I think it was the Chinese, that, is not acceptable
1: mm-hmm. in their
0: culture, and to an elderly person, for you to look them in the eye. And so anything that we all think about has to be flexible. It has to be what works best for you.
3: Yep, Cultura- culturally appropriate, for sure. Um, let's see, Aruba is asking, what about the code of ethics in the in the nursing homes, or is the business of nursing home the priority above the caring and um, get away from the understaffed that have no time to deal with behaviors. Any any thoughts about um, facilities and communities in terms of a, of a code of ethics?
0: I do think that um, there's been huge changes over the last number of years, especially since my mother passed away in 1996. Um, but there's still, like Al said, that culture of um, or the the fact that the people who are running the places, their their paycheck depends on how they perform against a certain set of um, criteria and until we change that criteria it's not going to change in the average nursing home and also until we Um, One of our models, um, just part of our value system and our mission has always been to create this higher level of care that's necessary with higher staff ratios, but also keep it um, open to people, low-income people on Medicaid. And that really is what we got the Robert Wood Johnson Award for, not just creating this model, but because we still serve low-income seniors. But if we don't get reimbursement rates changed, we have to advocate for them to start paying for positive outcomes that Mm -hmm. have to do with the quality of life, have to do with, um, you know, because in order for the average long-term care facility here in the States to do anything, they have to make money. And for me, I've been stubborn enough to keep it up and find another way to pay for it. I founded the Dementia Care Foundation because I couldn't find a way to make up that difference right now that Medicaid doesn't pay. And, you know, rather than give it up, or change the staffing or make it all private pay in order to keep going every month i had to find another way to pay for it but if anyone if the major change is going to happen we have to change the way things are being funded because oh, as we as we sit right now When we have people come in that have had histories of aggressive behavior and in and out of hospitals, we get a higher rate of pay. And once we take care of their emotional needs and their spiritual needs and the behavior goes away, Mm -hmm. we get our rates cut significantly, the way it sits now. So, you know, our whole thinking process in our system has to change.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna pull in a couple other comments here. Uh, Michelle was just saying body language um, communication is just so important. And Harry has another brilliant statement. He said, "Let us be what we are becoming. You know, yes. stop fighting it. <clears throat> just let us be. We're we're okay. You mm-hmm. know. And, and he just he just comes up with these one-liners sometimes that just uh, tug at my heart because he he just. It's so simple, but we make it so complicated. I do want to note, Judy, that one of the other things that I think that you do just uh, such a marvelous job on um, is that you look for the joy and you look for the purpose. So right. even though you're look, you're looking for these triggers and you're analyzing, I even hate to call them behaviors, but that's what everyone calls yeah. them, behaviors, things that don't fit into your model or aren't conducive right. for everyone who's around, um, mm-hmm. And trying to change those, you don't say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna stop this because it's bad. You say we're gonna do this different, so you're comfortable. And right. that's a, that's a huge mind shift. That's a huge the way it's approached, the way your your staff are allowed to get creative. I mean, because it's almost like going on a treasure hunt. I mean, that's when I deal with my mom. That's how I look at it. Yeah, it's like yeah, there's always something new to learn that I didn't know before. And instead of looking at as, as drudgery and this this horrible battle, you know, going in with this negative attitude, I look at it like a treasure hunt. It's like, okay, what am I going to find? And then, mm-hmm. because if, when I go in with it with that mode, I feel so dang good when I figure it out. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and then I can fix it so that she's comfortable.
0: Yeah. And, so, and the thing so, is, sometimes we can't fix. Sometimes mm-hmm. we just have to go there with him. You That's know, very good it, point. <laughs> just be there and, like Carrie says, let them be who they are and yep. respect that. Go there with them. Don't try to change it. Um, don't try to fix it. Just stay out mm-hmm. of that mode and be there as a support person. Just as mm-hmm. our people who are able to play instruments, they couldn't just do that if they're in a place where, somebody just hands them an instrument. It's because our staff take the time and understand that it's in there. You just have to help them um, be able to touch it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it amounts to people... You know, we've got people that play accordions, so you have to actually put their fingers on the keys and even sometimes push them and get them going. But once they get going, then they take off on themselves. And the um, self-satisfaction that that brings for someone, being able to assist them to lessen their disability rather than making it worse by either not giving them the credit for being able to do it or taking those things away because we're in a hurry and we don't have time to deal with that it's all about creating purpose for the individual person and no two people are the same
3: okay that's a, that's a very very good point um and i and i think too one of the things that i liked was that you just said is is that self fulfilling. It's so nice to be able to feel the joy of someone else's purpose. Yeah, again, that's a simple thing that in this busy world most people don't take the time to savor other people's, you know, triumphs. And it's right. just oh my gosh, it it just softens your heart. Well, we get just...
0: so pushed to satisfy our own needs that we forget. We don't know how to step back. Like you said, it was quite an experience to go on that retreat. You have to step away from yourself. And, you know, the best training that I have ever had for my staff, I also am a friend of Dr. Richard Taylor's, and I've had him here in Minnesota training our staff. But the training involves just being with them and telling them what it feels like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I look for other people who have different types of dementia to come in and be. I think the greatest learning experience for my staff is to teach them to listen, Mm -hmm. to um, actually hear what the other person feels. And if you're so caught up in your own needs or in the things that in long-term care they push you to be task-oriented, you have to get things done, um, you're never going to hear that. You're never going to be able to understand the person within.
3: Yeah, And I, I think it's listening and I think it's also observing with the key yeah. eye. And, and I, I personally for me, uh, it, it, this whole experience has increased my intuitiveness Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if there's ever been any studies or anything on that, but and maybe it's just because I've slowed down because I was the queen of multitask, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> and me too. That. and so I've learned to slow down and and it's just it's, I see things so much easier now. Um, it's been it, it it's become very simple to find mm-hmm. kind of the the root of an irritation. Someone and not just someone with dementia, but with anybody in my life. It's a it's a skill that can be applied throughout our whole life and makes Mm -hmm. all situations so much more comfortable for all of us. Because you know, as we talk, this isn't a disease of just one. One person might get diagnosed with it, but it really is a disease of society.
0: Oh yes, very definitely, and that's one of the the things that we've developed with our model that is so different from most understaffed places is our staff have also been taught how to be there for the families, you know, to be a part of um, understanding their um, anxiety and their frustration and encourage them by modeling to connect with their loved one in a way that they have maybe not seen and not, you know, been able to do. And it's much more effective modeling and, you know, being there with the families. And once the staff have learned to open up emotionally to the resident by validating emotions and feelings, they're also able to do that more with families. And Mm -hmm. it's been a huge asset to... You know, because like you say, it's not a disease or a a disability just of that person, it's everything Mm -hmm. around them. And I think it's critical that we have to look at this as a society as a whole um, thing that we need to change the paradigm on.
3: Yep, definitely. I know when I do my um, shifting your dementia care culture. Um, series, which you um were part of you know we we really try hard to get all staff at all levels um, to partake from maintenance to administration because mm-hmm. everybody has a role. this isn't just about the aide. it's not about the nurse, it's you know the housekeeping the laundry. every person who comes to interact has a responsibility and a duty to treat another person with dignity and yes. for some reason we've lost that. Um, we don't teach that, and I think that's why we have so many problems with the, the bullying and and I mean the the layers mm-hmm. are massive. And this disease allows us a way to learn again. Um, and I think because of the numbers, it's um, you know it's not something that we can escape, which I think is a is a good thing. I think these lessons really need to get hit home in a strong strong fashion. I'm going to um, just read something Aruba wrote here again. Also, learn to listen to ourselves. Um, since if someone can't listen to themselves, they can't listen or understand to others, especially not validating the emotional feelings of the Alzheimer's patients and entering mm-hmm. into that AD world, which is very true. So many people stuff their feelings and, you know, they kind of put on the Stepford Wives' face and mm-hmm. life is fine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all those emotions are spinning away inside, and even if we've got a big smile on our face, um, people can tell through the look in your eye or your mannerisms. Um, Oh, and it's
0: so true in our homes how um, we've taught staff to have it be a positive that they can recognize their own limitations. Where they've come from, many times they've been pushed to do more and more with less and less. And, you know, um, taken if you're stressed to the hilt and you show that or you say it and then take care of yourself by removing yourself temporarily from a situation um, that that's frowned upon as you not being good enough. Well, in ours, we completely retrain staff to think about recognizing your own limitations as a plus, a positive. Mm-hmm. And if you because all of your nonverbal transfers to other residents. If any of you have been, I don't know about the listeners, if they're professionals or family caregivers, but if you've been a professional caregiver and you're in a place where someone is acting out and becoming very aggressive, the whole place goes crazy. You know, it's like, it's almost like it goes into every other person that's in there. And I tell the staff if you're crabby and in a bad mood, residents are going to pick up on that, even if you're smiling at them. They're going to pick up the anxiety and the things. So you have to be so conscious of your own nonverbal language.
3: Very much so. And I think, you know, one of the things that we. We forget, you know, because we're, we're human and, we you know, we, we yeah. look at ourselves like that. But bottom line is we're all energy. And, you know, we're all intertwined. And that stuff, you know, negative um, energy passes just as fast, if not faster, in my opinion, faster. <laughs> and positive. And not only will it affect the people with dementia, but it's going to affect the staff or the family members, anybody around. No, mm-hmm. no, Nobody puts up a barrier to that. You know, it's just one of those things where, you know, and I think everyone can relate to walking into a room and and just going, oh, get me out of here. You know, it just doesn't feel good. You know, because the tension
0: is recognizable regardless of what's being said.
3: Exactly, exactly. And so I I think getting in tune with our emotions, with our nonverbals, is so critical. And, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, you're, you are definitely working on that I know I work on with my emotional-based training that, that uh, Al definitely has a, has a good feel and understanding for. And it's so critical um, to, in terms of making that shift. And, and, again, I think what you and I do both, Judy, is get people to feel the need. So yes. not just talking yes. statistics and black and white but showing Mm -hmm. examples and the benefits that reach people at a heart and soul level so that they want to make the change.
0: And one of the important Mm -hmm. things that I think needs to be mentioned, too, is that with our model, people most times come to us pretty heavily sedated or over-medicated, and until... You know, we have a buddy system where when a new person comes in, we have one-to-one staffing the same person um, for several days, sometimes up to 10 days, until that person realizes that we're going to be there for them, that that person is responsible for um, developing that trusting relationship that's most times been totally gone, and then we need to work immediately at reducing the psychotropic drugs because if somebody is under the influence of a lot of psychotropic drugs, you can't find out who they are as a person. I mean, mm-hmm. their their senses are dulled. Everything is dulled to a point that no matter how much you would try to connect with that person, you wouldn't be able to because the drug is in the way. And so it's so critical that we titrate back these drugs, obviously, you can't do it overnight, mm-hmm. but to be able to and it's not that we don't use drugs at all; we do therapeutically if someone needs something for anxiety um, they get it if that's a therapeutic thing, but it's what I see out there is the psychotropic drugs had become being used as a chemical restraint. You know, they took away with laws that you couldn't physically restrain people, but it's used as a chemical restraint and as a way to help staff and families rather than as a therapeutic um thing for to help the person.
3: Yeah, I, so I totally
0: So it's critical totally you agree. can't get to the emotional place where you need to go with someone. With advancing mm-hmm. dementia, if they're medicated to the help.
3: Yeah. Now Harry's asking, how about drugs like Namenda and um, Aricept? What are your thoughts on those?
0: We do have, over the years, we've had people on both Aricept and Namenda. Together, they seem to work better, but. It's like everything else. It works for some people. It doesn't work for others. And when I say it works, it just, what we've seen is it may stabilize a person for a few months. It doesn't change the progression. It, um, you know, and yet we've had families say to us if it can stabilize them for a few months and we are able to, they, the family's able to get their needs by communicating with the person or having them communicate back, then it's important. But there hasn't, there's been, with our residents, and I'm only speaking from my personal experience, I'm not a physician, I'm not a healthcare professional. Um, we have seen a lot of side effects to many of these drugs. Most of them are. Um, uh, you know, sick stomach and gastrointestinal stuff with both mm-hmm. Aricept and Namenda. So you do have to um, sort of take it person by person. And the other thing is that if you use Aricept and Amenda for a long time, when you discontinue it, um, it, which most of our people get to that place, you know, as they're getting to yeah. the very end stages where you discontinue medications that aren't necessary, you may see a significant drop in function. And, it, you know, it's really kind of up to the person, I think, on where they want to be. Um, but it, we see it doesn't work for everybody. And in many circumstances, there are bigger side effects than what, the benefit is. Yeah, I hope yeah, that's I answered your question, Harry. I don't know, you know.
3: Yeah, I, I think with my mom, she was on aerocept, and we just felt like it helped her plateau, and we don't know for sure because we didn't want to take her off because it was comfortable, yeah, we yeah. could communicate, and it was, it was working. And so, you know, I think with with this whole thing, you don't want to fix what's not broken, um, right? Because right. because it's just it's too difficult on everybody. You know, yeah. the, the, the yeah. change in the chemicals and it just,
0: yeah. It's, it's and just the awesome. parts of this, though, that's important is that, you know, there are many, many causes, like you know, Lori and most probably everybody out there, for symptoms of dementia. And it's not just Alzheimer's, which is what these drugs have mostly been researched and connected to. My mother had multi-infarct dementia or vascular dementia where she was having little tiny small strokes, and we see that in our resident population over the 14 years. We see that as almost as big as the Alzheimer's diagnoses, or maybe often there's two things going Mm -hmm. on. And if you don't get to the bottom of what possibly is the only reason some of that is important to us as care partners is the fact that we um, need to change our approach based on how the different causes affect people. You know, people with Parkinson's dementia, they lose their peripheral vision quicker than some others, so you need to know that to know not to approach them from the side, you know. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of things that make it important to understand what the actual cause of the person's dementia is.
3: Yeah, definitely. And
0: also the use of the drugs, because the drugs are um, effective in certain types of dementia but not in others. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Well, my gosh, I cannot believe our time has flown. We've got about six oh, my. minutes left. Yep. Um, it's just I could I could talk with you and and Al all day long. It's just fascinating mm-hmm. conversations, and you're both just such movers and shakers in terms of shifting our dementia care culture. And I just love so much, um, you know, what you do and how you do it. And uh, it's just—I it, it, know—it's been a really difficult journey, you know, breaking down the barriers that you—you've you've stayed strong. Um, Al has stayed strong. And you, and you have
0: I've... to stay with it. You cannot give up because there are many barriers, and sometimes it's really, really frustrating. But you have to keep moving forward in advocating for change because that's yep. the thing that has to happen before. I get dementia anyway,
3: <laughs> yeah, well, you know to me, one of my my mottos is it's about progress, not perfection, and right. you right. know even with you talking to your staff and your staff knowing that it's okay to not have skill levels you know at the top rating and everything, but to know where yeah. they are and what they need to learn um is a gift. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a gift on many levels because it's one that says, I'm okay the way I am, and I mm-hmm. can always be better. You know, yes. I, I have an opportunity to learn and to change, and I think sometimes we beat ourselves up so bad um, and we let that chatter in our head take over and, and squash us down and, you know, kick that chatter out the door. I mean, you got to listen to it every now and then, but for the most part, you know, that negative stuff... Kick it out the door and and follow your heart. You know, lead with your passion, Mm -hmm. and um, try to make the world a better place, just one moment at a time. And I think and I feel
0: just really fortunate that I have been able to live my dream. And mm -hmm. I want to certainly say, in no uncertain terms, this is not about what I've done, it's about what our direct care staff are doing every single day. And if I had my way, that position would be elevated to something above management (laughs) because
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I think we tend to forget that. We tend to forget that the real people on the front lines are the ones doing the work and they're They're the the ones... That are making the difference. And if somebody says, "Congratulations, Judy, on a great job," I always say, "Go talk to our staff, because they need that. They and people need to know that that is the core. You know, Mm -hmm. um, we're only as good as the people who work for us."
3: Now, Judy, how do people get a hold of you?
0: Um, they can go, um my email is lakeviewranch at yahoo.com. Um we have two websites, the www.lakeviewranch.com, and the other one is www.dementiacarefoundation.org. And on we have um Large websites that have videos and pictures of all the different things, and the Dementia Care Foundation website is the um, we have a lot of um, educational stuff on there, and results of our research that we've done with the university in St. Cloud. so um, you know, both websites have a whole lot, and you can contact me through the website or by my direct email.
3: Okay, well great. Well, I also want to remind people that we have our dementia Chats webinar today at three p m. Eastern time. That's two p m central and noon Pacific time. And if you'd like to join us on that, you can go to the alzheimerspeaks uh, dot com and just go to the blog and it'll it'll click you to the link there. Uh, there's a, there's a post, uh, with a direct link and, and Harry Urban will be with us and, uh, Leanne Chimes and, and many others I'm sure who were at the convention. We also have in, uh, coming up, I'm going to be interviewing on the 17th Dr. Devere and Elian Cassie, which are going to be talking about removing kind of these behaviors that we call. Uh, and so it will be a wonderful show. And have a blessed day. This has just been fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us all. Bye now. And
0: thank you for all the listeners. Hi, this is Suzanne
3: Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show.